The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 5th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see you guys. I'm going to hold this thing. I got used to it for a couple of weeks while we were in Japan. So I'm saying bring back greetings from Japan and say thank you as well uh, from those uh, workers and church planters in Japan who we worked with, and really from myself and from my son who you sent over there. We spent uh, a week together in Japan, but then a week at a conference uh, working with church planters, working with gospel workers, uh, engaged with ministry to the Japanese people. And some of you may not realize, we don't talk about it a lot. Um, it's not what we would naturally assume, but the Japanese people make up the second largest unreached people group in the world. When you and I think Japan, we think technology, we think economy, we think advancement, and we assume probably like the United States, there's a lot of gospel work and a lot of churches, but just maybe kind of lukewarmish. The reality of it is less than half of 1% of the Japanese people would confess to actually having a relationship with Jesus. The largest, at least to date, collection of gospel workers with a focus towards reaching the Japanese people with the gospel in Japan and around Japan. The largest collection of workers dedicated to reaching the Japanese people with the gospel was about nine days ago. And we had the privilege of going, uh, speaking, spending time with them, talking about the gospel, talking about what God's doing in the country, encouraging one another in the gospel. Um, and so they send thanks uh, and they continue to want more strategic help from us as we pray and consider how we can be a part of seeing healthy churches and healthy pastors in Japan reaching the people with the gospel. They send thanks to you for sending us, uh, and, and I say thanks on behalf of uh, my son and I for sending us and letting us be a part of that. It was exciting, uh, but there's so much work to be done um, to see the gospel take root in Japan to see the gospel take root in the hearts of Japanese people. It's a, it's a different paradigm than seeing the gospel take root in the United States. And when I say it's a different paradigm, I don't mean the gospel's different. The gospel is the same, but the lens through which people hear the gospel and engage the message of the gospel is different. In the United States, we wake up every single day, we're born into a reality, even if we're always trying to shake ourselves out from under it, that functions on a law-guilt paradigm. What did I not do right? What did I do wrong? What's the consequence? How does that work itself out? That's not the paradigm that the people that are being engaged in Japan wake up thinking about. The, the paradigm there is one of shame and honor. Living under the, the paralyzing fear of being shamed by those around you. And there's a system for shaming people there as well. And so when the gospel is being communicated and the gospel is being proclaimed and the gospel is being worked out, it's being worked out through a completely different paradigm. And so after I spoke in one of my sessions that wasn't translated, praise the Lord, I got a full hour and a half to talk, um, I had a conversation with two pastors that had been there for almost 20 years. Uh, and they were talking about how they spend so much of their time for 20 years building relationships with people, uh, talking about Jesus, teaching the gospel to them. And you see very little traction with the gospel, very little fruit with the gospel there. But they said there's one thing that seems to unlock the door of people's hearts there after they've been communicated to, after they've learned the gospel, after they, they've heard it and they're aware of it. There's one thing that kind of unlocks their heart. When they're in a relationship with a Christian and they... They do something out of step with the gospel. When they see someone who follows Jesus do something and that you're not supposed to do, let's say, in their culture, that would naturally bring on shame from the community and those around you. When they see someone treated with grace and not shame, when the whole system of shame is completely bypassed and they realize there's not this period of time under which they're going to take on this shame from the people around them and they're treated with grace, all of a sudden, something begins to happen in their heart. Now go figure. We got to write books and have conferences and come up with strategies for how to reach people when all along God's been saying the way that we treat one another with the gospel the way that we love one another through the gospel, the way that we respond to one another in the difficulties in life through the gospel will do something transformational to people's hearts. That's what he's been saying all along. In fact, if you've got Galatians chapter 6, 
This is what the Apostle Paul is going to tell us. We should not be so surprised that God does transformational things in people's hearts when his people live with one another in a grace-driven, gospel-steadied way. But yet we are all the time. Galatians chapter 6. In fact, let's go back to chapter 5, the last two verses, which Ray did a phenomenal job walking us through. But I want you to see how they all thread together, how Paul is not jumping around to all these different topics of conversation. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So when we get out of step with the Spirit, when we're not walking in step with the Spirit, life gets pretty ugly with one another, doesn't it? Pretty self-serving with one another. So Paul's going to continue his train of thought here, and I want you to listen to what he says. Brothers, family, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Getting ready for this week reminded me of why I so love the Bible and so love Christianity itself. I don't know if you've realized this yet or not, but the Bible and and Christianity itself is tremendously honest, tremendously realistic. If you like the word, tremendously relevant. You see, what Paul just said here, what what Paul implies here, what Paul assumes in these verses is that in your life, even as a follower of Christ, you are going to encounter a number of various difficulties. In verse 1, you or someone you love, a brother or sister in Christ, is going to find themselves caught, ensnared, trapped in sin. And how you respond to that makes all the difference in proclaiming what it is about the gospel that you believe. But it's not just that. Verse 2, Paul says that all of us, you and the person right next to you in the chair you're sitting in, right there touching your shoulder, you or someone you love around you, at some point in your life is going to go and undergo a season of burden. You're going to have something in your life that is going to burden you. That's just a reality. And then Paul's going to go on in verses 3 through 5, and I promise you we won't have time to get there this morning. But even in this life here and now, you and I, with each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to have to deal with things like jealousy and sinful comparison. It's just the reality of life in a fallen world. The Bible, Christianity itself, is tremendously honest, and I don't want you to miss that. But the other thing I don't want you to miss as well is that each of these verses truly could and should be probably its own sermon. These verses in chapter 6, going through the first 10 verses, in some ways it's like reading New Testament version of Proverbs. Each sentence and each statement is so pregnant with imagery and weight that you have to slow down to really kind of unpack the fullness of what Paul is saying. And so this morning we're just going to get started. We're probably not going to go as far as maybe I would want to go, but we're going to go. And guess what? No one's got to translate me. So that's amazing. And I'll tell you this because I told the other services this. If you've ever spoken with a translator, you know how it works. When you speak a sentence, you have to stop every sentence. And the translator has to translate the sentence you just said. Now in Japanese, and Jesse can back me up, in Japanese, it takes twice as long to say the same sentence in Japanese as it does in English. So when they sent me my assignments, I had nine different sessions. Some translated, some not. And some of them, they said, you had an hour to talk. Yes. Then they told me I had 25 minutes to talk in English. And I want you to know I did it every time. (laughs) Every single time. The Japanese don't want you to go over your time. They don't want you to start before your time. Extremely punctual. And I did it every single time. So it's possible, but not today. (laughs) And unless someone's going to translate me, probably not next week either. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, family, 
if anyone is caught in any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There are times in your life when you are going to be knocked out of step with the Spirit. There are times in your life when your sinful flesh, your sinful heart, is going to lead you out of step with the Spirit. How we respond to one another in those moments and in those seasons says everything about what we believe regarding the gospel for ourselves, And it carries a tremendous weight to what others see and believe about the gospel that we actually proclaim. Brothers, family, friends, if anyone is caught, trapped, ensnared, the picture is like an animal caught in a, in a, in a, like a bear trap or in a net. They're not dead, they're just not able to move on. They're stuck. If anyone is caught, ensnared, trapped, in any transgression. Now, if you've been with us through Galatians, we've talked about transgression before. Transgression literally means out of bounds. There's been a clearly marked boundary, and you said, that doesn't apply to me, and you step over it. It means getting off the designated path. That's what it means, to stray. What Paul just said is that there are going to be times when you may observe your brother or sister in Christ, the person sitting right next to you this morning in the chairs, you observe that they have found themselves caught, ensnared in a pattern of living that is out of step with the gospel. It's strayed off the path of God's spirit. And here's the thing about being caught and ensnared in sin. To be caught and ensnared in sin by definition is to not realize you're caught. That's the difference in the imagery of an animal being caught in a trap. They realize they're caught, and when they realize they're caught, do you know what happens? You ever try to catch a mouse or a rat in a trap and not kill it? You know what they do? They'll chew that leg right off. Because they realize they're caught, and they want to get out. To be caught in transgression, ensnared, by definition, is to not realize you're caught because you're blind to it. If you realize it, you'd be trying to get out. So there are going to be times in your life when you look around and you have a brother or sister in Christ, someone you love, and you can recognize that they've been ensnared by a pattern of living and thinking that is out of step with the gospel, and they are already or about to suffer the consequences of that. What do you do? How do you respond? Paul says when you see that, when you encounter that, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The first thing that Paul wants you and I to understand is that we have been called into the ministry. We have been given the mandate of restoration. All of us. Now that itself is a packed word and a packed image. Paul is not saying that when you recognize a brother or sister in Christ that's caught or ensnared in a life that's out of step with the gospel, that you deputize yourself a member of the sin police and go after them to shoot them and drag them back in. No, he's very specific about this ministry that we have been called to. The ministry of restoration, to restore something, literally means to put it back in order. Something has become disordered, and restoration is putting it back in order. It's restoring it to its former or intended condition. In the first century, this would be a root word used in the medical community for when a joint would become dislocated and needed to be put back in socket, for when a bone would get broken and needed to be reset, it needed to be restored back into order, back into its intended condition. So I want you to see that God has called us into this ministry of restoration. This is something that he has called us into, and I want you to hear how positive that actually is. I want you to catch the positive connotation of the ministry that God is calling us into, and I want you to hear the positivity behind it by recognizing the negative things that we tend to respond with. 
When you and I see someone caught, ensnared, in a pattern of living that's out of step with the gospel, Paul is not saying that we find a way to pretend that we didn't see what we see. Well, that's none of my business. That's their business, not mine. That's not what he's saying. The ministry of restoration, it's not recognizing someone caught in transgression and condemning them in our heart. Well, that serves them, right? That's what they get. The ministry of restoration, it's not seeing someone we love, a brother or sister in Christ that we're responsible for, caught in transgression and going, hmm, do you see what they're doing? You see how they're living? And we don't do that, do we? And praise God, we're not like them. The ministry of restoration is not gossiping to others about what we see going on in someone else's life. It's not condemning them in our hearts because we're not doing the same thing. It's not avoiding them and isolating them because they're getting what they deserve. That's not the ministry of restoration. No, Paul says, because of the gospel, we enter in with this person not to isolate them, not to amputate them, but to help restore them back to order, to help their life be restored back in step with the Spirit, to help them through confession and repentance restore a right relationship and solidify the trust and confidence in the gospel. That's the ministry of restoration, to help put something back in order. It's a positive thing. But here's the thing. Just because it's positive doesn't mean at times it won't be painful. Just because it's positive doesn't mean at times it won't be painful. When I was 15 years old, I did something tremendously foolish, very stupid, and I broke my my left wrist. Now, at the time, I was a competitive tennis player, and I used both my hands, and I had a cast on my arm up above my elbow, so it changed everything about the way that I was living. But it happened, and I had to wear that cast for about eight or nine weeks. And when they took that cast off, they put a soft brace on my wrist. It wasn't a hard cast, it was a soft brace. And me, being the foolish person that I was, began to do things again that were foolish and stupid, practically. And I fell from a pretty high distance doing something I shouldn't have been doing. And I instinctively tried to catch myself. And I caught myself with that hand and that wrist. Now, because I had that soft brace on my arm, it kept the bones from coming out of my skin. But I had a compound fracture in my left wrist. The bones were completely severed apart. And then when bones completely sever, if you've ever seen it before, I can't do it because I have a handheld mic, they overlap. They don't just go like that. They go like that. It's tremendously painful. I got to the doctor. Tremendous pain. He put some contraption on my arm. Some of you might know what it's called. I don't know what it's called. I think it's called a traction splint. But it attached above the brake, and it attached below the brake. And they put tension on it, and it stretched the bones so they could go back into order. Tremendously painful. The wave of relief that came over my body physically when the bones quit pushing against the nerves in my skin and got back into order was unbelievable. But there's absolutely no way to reset a broken bone like that or reset a dislocated joint without some level of pain. It just is. And in the ministry of restoration, that kind of splint of the soul needs to be applied. And just because it's positive and just because it's proactive, it doesn't mean it's not going to be painful at times. That's why I honestly believe Paul qualified his statement here. When he said, you who are spiritual should restore your brother or your sister in a spirit of gentleness. Now, when Paul says, you who are spiritual, he's not designating a specific class of Christian. He's not giving you your pass out of the ministry of restoration. He's not allowing you to go, well, that must be the pastors or the elders, right? That's not me. I don't want to do that. No, quite literally what Paul is saying, the spiritual people is the church. Everyone in whom the Spirit of God resides. More specifically, if you stick with Paul's train of thought, it's those that he was talking about in chapter 5 who are continuously living in step with the Spirit, whose lives are in step with the Spirit of God. Why? Well, Ray talked about it. The natural Spirit-born fruit of a life in step with the Spirit of God is gentleness. It comes from the Spirit at work in us. 
living in step with the Spirit, your soul increasingly steadied by the gospel, your reality anchored in who God is for you in Christ and continues to be for you in Christ, His Spirit in you produces in you the fruit of gentleness that naturally compels you to engage in the work of restoration. I want you to understand that the gentleness that Paul is talking about here does not come from your natural disposition. Some people we would look at and go, well, that's a very gentle person. Well, there is a natural disposition that masquerades as gentleness that is not the same thing as something born of the Spirit of God. Just like you can look at someone and go, that person's got a tremendous amount of self-control. When in reality, they're just afraid of getting in trouble. So they know how to toe the line and do what they're supposed to do. It's not self-control, it's fear. The gentleness that Paul is talking about is a gentleness that comes not by a natural disposition because you are hardwired to be gentle. It comes from the work of God's Spirit in your heart. One commentator describes it this way. It's a calm and patient and wise demeanor that colors everything that the Spirit of God does through His people. This gentleness that comes from God's Spirit, it's not an avoidance. It's not a weakness that we would consider in a negative sense. It's not a cowering away from things. But it's a gentleness that comes from the Spirit, and therefore it's considerate. It's wise. It's sensitive. And so as we engage in this ministry of restoration in a spirit of gentleness born by the very Spirit of God at work in us, the tone of our voice, the words we use, the way we say things, the place we intend to even have a conversation with someone. Everything matters, and everything has the intention to heal and restore, not wound and not shame. See, this ministry of restoration, born by the Spirit of God in a spirit of gentleness, doesn't believe that to bring someone back into order with the Spirit to defend God's cause in their life requires loud voices and harsh language all the time. The aim isn't to prove somebody wrong, but to restore somebody back to Christ. F.F. Bruce was a great Greek scholar, a New Testament scholar, and, and writing about Galatians 6, he said one test of true spirituality, and true spirituality, you can, you can be synonymous with keeping in step with the Spirit. One test of true spirituality is a readiness to set those who stumble by the wayside on the right road again, in a sympathetic, gentle spirit. He said, if you cannot do it gently, you better not do it at all. You need to let someone else do it. Someone spiritual enough to perform such a delicate task. You know, history doesn't always remember people exactly as they were. History likes to remember people through particular lenses and through particular aspects of their life. And I think... One person in church history who's particularly pigeonholed by the way we remember him is Martin Luther. And talking about the spirit of the Reformation in 500 years, Luther is remembered as a very pugnacious, very loud, very, very confrontational man. No one in church history would, would equate Martin Luther with gentleness, so to speak. In fact, if you go Google, today's up, you leave here, don't do it now, turn your phones off. You leave here, you can go Google Martin Luther insult generator. Someone collected all the insults that Martin Luther had written in all of his works towards people into one place. So every day you can go to the Martin Luther insult generator and hit a button that says, insult me, Luther, and a new insult generates up for you. So this morning I went to the Martin Luther insult generator. Luther told me that I am the ultimate scourge of the world, the Antichrist, together with all of my sophists, that in all things I do the very opposite of Christ as befits a true Antichrist. That's how we remember Luther. He wasn't afraid to say those kinds of things. We don't remember him as a particularly gentle man, but Martin Luther loved the people that God sent him to. And in his tremendous, his towering commentary on the book of Galatians, it came from a series of sermons that he preached to people that he loved. And if you go read Luther's sermons on Galatians chapter 6, listen to how he tries to encourage his congregation in this ministry of restoration. Luther says, when you see a brother or sister ensnared, trapped, caught in a pattern of living that's, that's out of step with the gospel, out of step with the Spirit. L Luther said you need to run to him. 
Don't avoid him. Don't point at him. Don't shame him. Run to him and reach out your hand. Help to raise him up again. Comfort him with sweet words of Christ and embrace him with motherly arms. I want you to understand this ministry of restoration that God has called us into, made us agents of, graciously invited us into. You can't accomplish this ministry on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. That's not where the ministry of restoration happens. It happens face to face. It happens by running to someone you see caught. And not only might that make it a little more uncomfortable because we've become much more comfortable behind our screens than in front of someone else, do you know what it will also mean? It also means you'll get no credit for it anywhere. No one's going to give you a book contract for it. No one's going to make much of you for it. You're not going to be able to write about it on a blog and get a bunch of people to come and read it. It's a tremendously mundane, tremendously unspectacular, tremendously powerful ministry that God has called each and every single one of us into. In fact, I'll say this, and I think it's fair enough to say it on the authority of the Bible, this ministry of restoration arguably might be the most powerful missionary work that you and I are ever called to. I just spent time with people who left their homes, moved to another part of the world, are having to learn a completely different language, assimilate into a completely different culture. So what I'm saying is not diminishing that. I want you to hear what I'm saying. The ministry of restoration may very well be the most significant missionary work God calls you to. Why? How did Jesus say the watching world, not the first century, not the fifth century, not the 21st century, all of it, the watching world, how were they going to actually know that we belong to him? That our lives are hidden in him, that our greatest hope is him, that we're anchored by him, that we're steadied by him. How are they going to know that? Our websites? Is that, is that how they're going to know? All the different programs and things we put together and the cute ways we build them around and the things we go do, is that how they're going to know? By, by how good we are with 140 characters. Is that how they're going to know? What did Jesus say? They're going to know your mind. That I'm your hope. That I'm your anchor. That I'm your greatest reality. They're going to know that by the way you love each other. Unspectacular. Ordinary. Absolutely mundane, but arguably the most kingdom-impacting missionary work you will ever be called to, and it might be the person sitting right next to you. You and I have been called into the gracious ministry of restoration. Agents of the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to help see those we love restored back into a life in step with the Spirit of God. Which is why I think Paul gives us the warning he gives us here. If you see anyone caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. What, what might we be tempted to? In this ministry of restoration, what's the temptation that we might face? Is it the sin that our brother or sister is ensnared by? Maybe. I think it goes deeper than that, though. Look, be honest with yourself real quick. How hard is it for you when you recognize someone you love caught, ensnared, in, in a pattern of living that's out of step with the gospel, ensnared in sin, how hard is it for you to begin to feel just the slightest bit superior to them? How hard is it for you to, to get just a little bit tempted 
to feel just a little bit self-righteous in comparison to them. Paul says, keep watch. Pay attention to your heart. What's anchoring your heart? How well you do something or what God's done for you in his son? What's steadying your heart? The gospel or something else? Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted to think something untrue about yourself in the face of what's going on in your brother or sister. Lest you be tempted towards an arrogance and a pride in light of what your brother and sister are going through. You see, when our hearts are in step with the Spirit, God produces in us the gracious fruit not only of gentleness, but of a humility required to engage in the ministry of restoration. So you and I, we will never be able to truly engage in the ministry of restoration as long as we feel superior to those that God has sent us to be a part of. You can have great self-control with your mouth, great discipline with your language, never actually say what you're thinking to that person or anyone else, but you're still harboring that sense of righteousness in your own heart. Just keep watch, lest you find yourself tempted to walk out of step with the Spirit, even while engaging in the ministry of restoration. I love how Paul brings that reminder of humility back up because it goes right into what he's about to say next. I mean, we were called to this ministry of restoration, but that's not it. There's another ministry that he called us into that's equally unspectacular, equally mundane, and equally everyday, but equally as impactful and powerful to other people's lives and to a watching world. Paul says in verse 2 that you and I are to bear one another's burdens. We've been commissioned into the ministry of burden-bearing. And again, tremendously pregnant imagery here. A burden is a weight, a package, or a load that is so heavy, one person can't carry it a long distance. You might get five, six, seven steps, maybe get across the room, but you can't take it all the way to the finish line. It's just too great for you to carry That's why people would take particular loads and put them on ox or put them on donkey or put them on a camel, what you might find referred to as a beast of burden. They would carry what was too heavy for any one person to carry themselves. And Paul says the gospel, by the grace of God, has called us into a mutual ministry of not just restoration, but of burden-bearing. And these burdens, it could be the ensnarement of a sin. That's a burden but it could as well be a physical ailment or a mental ailment or the loss of a job. It could be an emotional struggle. It could be a spiritual struggle. It could be a demonic harassment. It could be any number of things. But the Bible presupposes that in a fallen world, you and I are are going to undergo seasons where we have burdens placed upon our shoulders that left to ourselves are too heavy for us to actually carry. And you and I need to recognize that when that happens... There isn't a single one of us in the room that's self-sufficient enough to carry it. That's why Paul says if anybody thinks he's somebody, he's deceiving himself. One translation will go on to say, for that very thought proves that he's nobody. See, God has graciously given us each other, not just as agents of restorations, but agents of burden-bearing. the way that we treat others, the way that we approach the burdens that our brothers and sisters carry, the way that we respond to those burdens depends in large measure on what we think about ourselves. One writer said this, people who have a rather high opinion of themselves are generally unwilling to carry someone else's baggage. They're too self Serving to be self-giving. They think serving others is beneath their dignity. Why should I stoop so low to carry someone else's burden? But that pride goes the other way too. People who have too high opinion of themselves, as Paul would talk about it, don't, aren't willing to recognize when they themselves are under a burden and need someone else's help to carry it. Which is why the humility that Paul warned us about in the previous verse, keeping watch on our heart, lest we fall tempted to this kind of pride, is so important here as well. Because you and I need one another 
That is the way that God wired it. There's a funny story that's been told about Muhammad Ali. Ali was on a flight. The flight attendant came to him and told him he needed to buckle his seatbelt. Do you know what he said? Superman don't need no seatbelt. And do you know what the flight attendant said? Someone I want to meet one day. Superman don't need no plane. I want to meet, I want to meet that person one day. I would not have said that to Ali. Also, keep watch on yourself. Lest you be tempted, but not just that, but lest you have a false opinion of yourself. Thinking something of yourself that isn't true. You and I need one another in the seasons in which God calls us to bear one another's burdens. And to do that, you and I are going to be required to get really close to each other, shoulder to shoulder with each other, toe-to-toe with each other, that we might be able to come under that burden with each other. To bear one another's burdens together, we're going to have to be willing to stand under the weight of that burden with our brother or sister. And what that means is that you and I are going to have to suffer a little bit in the process. This is the thing I think I forget when I consider this ministry that God has called us to and called me to. I recognize sometimes burdens that brothers or sisters are under, and I want to come help relieve that burden. But here's the thing. If you're going to come help shoulder that burden and carry that burden, it means you're going to have to get underneath that burden. That's literally what the word understand means, to stand under something that you might recognize it. It means you're going to have to get under it with that person that you might understand it. But when you get under it, it means some of the weight and the pressure of it's going to shift over to you. It means you're going to have to suffer a little bit. You're going to have to hurt a little bit. This is what makes it so hard for us. Jonathan Edwards found it hard with his congregation. Edwards, in trying to preach Galatians chapter 6 to his congregation, tried to explain it this way. If your neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than your own, so if you recognize your brother or your sister is carrying a burden, and the burden they're carrying right now is much greater than anything you're carrying in your life in this season. And you see that he's not like to be otherwise relieved. He doesn't have the resources, emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, financially. He doesn't have whatever resources he needs to deal long-term with that burden that he's bearing. He's bearing. You should be willing to not just bear the burden with him. Edward says you should be willing to suffer with him and to take part of his burden on yourself. How else is that rule of bearing one another's burdens actually fulfilled? If you never be obliged to relieve someone else's burden, except when you can do it without burdening yourself. Do you know what you just said right there? If you're only willing to come underneath someone else's burden and allow yourself to be a part of bearing their burden when it won't cost you anything, when it cost you anything emotionally, spiritually, financially, with your time, with anything, when it won't cost you, if that's the only time you're willing to do it, Edward says, how in the world then do you expect the command to bear our neighbor's burdens actually be fulfilled when you're not willing to bear any of it at all? What he just said in modern English is that when you say, I don't have time to step in or I don't have money to help out, Edwards would say, you're, you're playing a very dangerous game with your heart. And you're creating very crafty and shifty ways to say this. I don't want any of your burden over here on me. I don't want any of your hardship over here on me. Now, the challenge, and I know some of you are thinking it, and I've got to watch the clock, so I've got to go. challenge is, some of you are going, but doesn't God say that we're supposed to cast all of our burdens and cares on him? Isn't that what he says? Well, yes. And amen. And you should. But be careful. Lest you pigeonhole how God actually cares for your burden. Lest you assume that God taking your burdens upon himself 
from you only happens in your private times of prayer or in your special seasons of waiting on him to feel differently. Be careful that you don't pigeonhole him. One of the ways that God intends to care for the burdens that we cast upon him is by giving us one another. That is one of the ways that God takes those burdens from us. In fact, that's what Paul was trying to communicate. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul shipwrecked, beaten, all kinds of, of, of troubles and hardships. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, God who comforts the downcast. Do you want to know how he comforted us? How he came in the midst of our burdens and helped us? He said God comforted us by sending us Titus. He comforted us in our burden by sending us someone in which we heard and remembered and received the good news and the encouragement. John Stott would say this kind of friendship amongst God's people in which we bear one another's burdens, it's part of the purpose of God for his people. And this ministry of burden bearing, like the ministry of restoration, it's not spectacular. It's rather mundane. It's pretty ordinary. We're not going to get a lot of acclaim for it. A lot of people aren't going to know our name because of it. But God intends for it to be a means of grace in the lives of his people. And when his people love one another the way in which they have been loved, God does astounding things, not only in their hearts, but in the hearts of a watching world. See, are we ready to come alongside one another? Are we ready at times to get underneath the burdens that one another bear? Are we willing to allow some of the burden and hardship to shift over onto us? For some of us, are, are we in a place of humility enough to be able to admit that we're carrying a burden right now that we can't carry ourselves and that we might need the help. Now, there's a danger here, and Paul's going to offer a corrective in the verses that are to come. We'll, we'll get to it next week. The gospel culture that produces a people who are part of the, the ministry of restoration, the ministry of burden-bearing, the gospel culture that produces that doesn't produce over-dependent and high-maintenance people who feel like every single thing in their life someone else is supposed to carry for them. The gospel produces a people that recognizes that in our life, there's a load that Paul is going to explain that each of us have to carry. But that there are seasons in our life when a burden comes upon our shoulders. And we recognize that we can't carry it ourselves and that God has given us one another to help us carry that burden. Friends, this, in the eyes of a watching world, does something that we can't quantify. Which is why Paul says, when we bear one another's burdens, we're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. We're actually loving one another the way that we've been loved by him. That's what the law of Christ actually is. Paul already said in Galatians chapter 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who said that? Jesus said that. So it's fair to say that to love your neighbor as yourself is synonymous with bearing one another's burdens. It's synonymous with fulfilling the law of Christ. That's what it is. When you and I love one another the way that we have been loved, God does spectacular things not only in our lives but in the eyes of a watching world. Friends, we are only able to engage and the courageous and yet gentle ministry of restoration and burden-bearing because of Jesus. You realize that God came close in Christ. He came under our burden. And he did not just take part of our burden upon himself. He took the totality of our burden upon himself. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. Not his own, for, for ours. He was crushed. What a word. He wasn't just burdened. He was crushed by our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. You want to talk about restoration? Setting back in order that which has been set out of order? We can only engage in the gracious, gentle ministry of restoration and burden bearing because of Christ. All of us, Isaiah said, like sheep, go astray. Get out of order. Get off the path. Wander outside the boundaries. All of us, we've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity, the burden of us all. Friends, to be able to bear someone else's burden, to be able to engage in the gentle ministry of restoration, to be able to engage in the courageous ministry of burden bearing, it's not going to be enough for you and I to intellectually understand that Jesus has borne our burdens. You and I are going to need to be reminded anew every single day by His Spirit with the opened eyes of our hearts that He bore the totality of our personal, your burden for your sin. To be able to engage in this ministry in step with the Spirit, in a spirit of gentleness and humility and courage and not yet be crushed by the burdens that we help to carry. You and I are, again, going to need to behold Christ. You're going to need to see Him in Gethsemane, sweating blood as He prepares to bear the totality of your burden, your guilt, You're going to need to see him again anew tomorrow and the next day as he's mocked and stripped naked, bearing upon himself the shame that you deserve, the totality of it. You're going to need to see him again as he's beaten, as he's whipped, as he's crucified, literally crushed, torn apart as he bears your burden for sin. Behold, behold, what a word, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away the totality of your sin. And then you need to go to the tomb. You're going to need to go see the tomb. It's empty because he's alive. And because he sits at the right hand of his Father, you're going to need to see again that he not only took upon himself the totality of the burden for your sin, he took upon himself the totality of the burden of death itself for you. You and I can only do the gentle work of restoration and the courageous work of burden bearing because Christ has already borne for us our greatest burden and has now given us his very spirit to cultivate in us what we need to engage in what he's called us to and to protect us from being destroyed by it. Do you realize why so many of us, and maybe it's not as many as I might think, but how some of us, when we try to engage in helping one another bear the burdens of our lives, do you realize why some of us get crushed by those burdens? Why it becomes so taxing, why it becomes so draining, and why we find ourselves burnt out and downcast and trying to help someone else bear their burden? Many times we find ourselves in that situation because what we're actually trying to do is bear the burden of our own righteousness and salvation upon ourselves and prove we're worthwhile in it. So while we think we're actually helping someone else bear their burden, what we're trying to do is really prove ourselves and prove our own worth. You've got to understand there has been and only ever will be one person who has ever walked on the face of the earth who's sufficient to carry the burden of your righteousness and your salvation And he's already done it. You and I need to behold again today, tomorrow, and the next day, Christ. Because as we rest in the steadying work of the gospel, Christ beholding our guilt, our shame for us in our place, you and I, by the work of his Spirit in us, are able to come underneath the burdens that one another carry and not be crushed by them. Because we're not trying to carry a burden in the midst of it we were never intended to carry. Friends, it's the burden-bearing life of Christ. It's the gentle, restoring work of God through His Spirit. 
that you and I celebrate every single week when we come together. We remember it as we go through God's word. We celebrate it as we encourage one another in it. And we celebrate it practically and tangibly together every single time we're here and we receive communion together. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating. So in just a moment, the musicians are going to come up here and play. And those of you who have tasted of the sweetness of God's grace towards you, his restoring work towards you through his son, and you by repentance and faith have said yes and amen. Christ is my all in all. You're going to be invited forward. And as you come forward, you'll take a piece of bread remembering, remembering his body and the totality of the burden of your guilt and shame that he bore on the cross in your place. And you dip it in the cup and you'll remember the blood, his blood, shed for your forgiveness and your righteousness and the promise and the fulfillment of the gospel to come and that God has given you everything you need by His Spirit to do everything He's called us to do. And as we fulfill the law of Christ together, confident in the gospel, empowered by His Spirit, God does something spectacular in the hearts of His people and in the eyes of a watching world. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to give you a moment to reflect on God's word and then together we'll respond. We'll receive communion, we'll sing, and we'll be sent out of here as his people. So let me pray for us and we'll respond. Father, we thank you as we're reminded again through your word that you did not leave us to ourselves. But Lord, you've rescued us. You've restored us. By your spirit, you are changing us and you're empowering us and you graciously have called us into the work of being agents of your restoration and burden bearing in the lives of those we love. Lord God, help us today, tomorrow, and the next day to be anchored in who you are for us that we might be compelled by your spirit to engage in the gracious work of restoration that we might not be crushed as we help to bear the burdens that one another carry, but that as we love one another the way you've loved us, Lord, you've promised a watching world is going to demand an answer. So, Lord, we ask that you will do the miracle in us, bringing us to the place of humility, recognizing our continued need for you and for one another. And we ask that you would do it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.